Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 5. Reorganisation. A few days later, I received orders to proceed to England immediately, and before leaving, I said goodbye to General Hopkinson. He wished me good luck on my venture and said, Do all you can to make them see the real importance of airborne operations. How much can be done if one has aircraft and training? I will, sir. That is my main purpose, I said. I was never to see him again, for the airborne division moved to Italy while I was away, and he was killed in one of the forward positions. General Hopkinson was followed by Major General Downs, another very determined character. I arrived in England and went to ground. By now, the 2nd Battalion, the Glider Pilot Regiment, was beginning to take shape. Lieutenant Colonel Ian Murray had his headquarters in the new Nissen hut at Camp Fargo. This was complete folly. It was in the middle of Salisbury Plain, and although it had several huts laid out to suit the squadrons of the Glider Pilot Regiment, it created an entirely wrong atmosphere. A very high standard of discipline and esprit de corps had been established in this camp, but there is discipline, and now the difficulty was to show those at home that a new approach to the subject was necessary. Having seen the remarkable flexibility of the glider pilots in the field, I knew that although strict discipline and esprit de corps were very important, a greater respect for the intelligence, integrity and purpose of these exceptional men must also be shown. Soon I was informed that I must report to the Director of Training at the Air Ministry. The Director was Air Chief Marshal Sir Peter Drummond, who had been one of my station commanders in the Royal Air Force, and when I arrived at the Air Ministry I was treated with a great deal more respect than usual. An Air Commodore came up to me and said, ''Will you come this way please, Colonel?'' which was a rather different approach from the usual, this way please. Entering the lift, I was taken to a top floor and there ushered into the office of Sir Peter Drummond, who sat writing at his desk. Looking up in a startled voice, he said, Good God, George, what on earth are you dressed up like that for? I explained. Then he said rather loudly, And what the hell is the meaning of this cable? I'll read it to you. Give every assistance to Colonel George Chatterton, United States Air Force. Make available a number of lectures and follow the advice of this officer on glider operations. Signed, Wigglesworth, Air Commodore for General Dwight Eisenhower. What does all this mean? You, a colonel in the USAAF? However, I shall have to give you every assistance as directed. I then explained the whole setup and my difficulty in making generals understand that the air was not like green pastures. I said... What amazes me is that when this regiment was started, a colonel who had never flown was selected to command the outfit, which is much the same as deciding that the horse guards or the 12th Lancers should have a commander who has never ridden a horse. The air marshal said, I see no difference. Gradually I brought out my story and he sat there listening. Finally he said, Good God, I can't believe it. Well, you must have carte blanche immediately. And he gave it to me. From that moment things began to happen. 
I lectured at many headquarters and began to create a new attitude towards glider operations. It was interesting to see how little anybody knew of this form of warfare, and I could see all was not going to be plain sailing. For we are, as a nation, suspicious of new ideas and demand long experience before we're convinced. Airborne forces were no exception to the rule. I gradually forced the authorities to see that it was wrong for each battalion of the glider pilot regiment to be separated because the 1st and 6th Airborne Divisions wanted them to be. I argued that centralisation was the only hope of making the force adequate and that the 1st Battalion must join the 2nd Battalion. This meant there would have to be a commander glider pilots whose status would be similar to that of a commander Royal Artillery. In this way, the whole regiment would have, in the commander glider pilots, one officer who would look after all their interests. During this time, I visited Salisbury Plain to see an exercise carried out by the 2nd Battalion, the Glider Pilot Regiment. 11 Whitley bombers tugged 11 horse gliders to an airfield at Shrewton, and the gliders landed on the airfield. As I watched, it was clear that little or no advance had been made in over a year. I thought back to the demonstration before Winston Churchill when six Hotspur gliders had landed. Now, a little over a year later, only 11 horses could be landed in front of him if he asked for it. Indeed, all those present were delighted by the result, but it was more than apprehensive. If the airborne lift was to be effective, many hundreds of gliders must be landed en masse, and here we were still at the same stage of only a few at a time. One other point became clear to me, and that was that the dispositions of the two battalions of the glider pilot regiment were wrong. The 1st Battalion, of which I was in command, had been dispatched to Italy under command of the 1st Airborne Division and was being used as ground troops, an appalling conception. The 2nd Battalion was nearly ready, so far as flying training by the RAF was concerned, and it was now at Camp Fargo, wrapping itself up in red tape. If glider pilots wanted flying practice, they were instructed to mount waiting lorries to take them to the station at Netheraven. Here they had to sign in at the guardroom gate before being driven to the glider training unit establishment, which was equipped with a number of Hotspur eight-seater gliders. A certain amount of flying practice would then be allowed, after which they were driven back to the military camp. No fraternisation with the RAF was allowed. The whole picture was wrong, wrong in every respect, and I felt that I must do something to change it. By now, I'd been in England for a few weeks and conventional elements were beginning to criticise me. Why had I not gone back to my battalion? Why was I interfering with that which did not concern me? But I was trying to find the answer to one question. How was I going to establish the regiment in the right environment and give it the right status, providing the maximum training for the pilots and finding maximum opportunity for planning, whatever operation as required it must be in the near future? At this time, the regiment was still established as an RAF wing. Group Captain Sir Nigel Norman, who was one of the original commanders, was killed while a passenger in a Hudson aircraft belonging to the communication flight of 38 wing. To date... The casualty list of officers killed during the development of airborne forces was indeed a long one. Lieutenant Colonel John Rock, Major Lander, a pioneer parachutist, Major Alistair Cooper, squadron leader Wilkinson, an expert in glider towing, Major General Hopkinson and now Sir Nigel Norman. These men would be difficult to replace. I succeeded in convincing the Air Force that it was imperative that the headquarters of the RAF should have an officer who knew what he was talking about and the weight of my RAF background impressed them enough to encourage them to ask for my services. Without any justification on the establishment, I invented the name Commander Glider Pilots, similar to Commander Royal Artillery, the two roles being very similar. Whereas the Commander Royal Artillery controlled all things pertaining to artillery, I would advise on and control all things pertaining to glider pilots. 
I managed to obtain an office in the headquarters of 38 Wing. It was a compromise, for one end of it was a coal cellar, and at the other end I had a small table and a blotter and ink. My thoughts and work were often interrupted by the entry of a WAF who came to collect coal for the fires in other offices, and quite naturally I became covered in coal dust, as did all my papers. In January 1944, Air Vice Marshal Leonard Hollinghurst, CB, CBE, DFC, was appointed to command 38 Group, which was originally 38 Wing. It had been decided to increase the establishment, and as a result some Halifax and Stirling bombers were transferred with crews to 38 Group. This was a major step forward, and it became clear that things were really about to move. The Air Vice Marshal was a determined type, and I do not think that he relished being handed this command, particularly as he knew that he would have to be mixed up with the army. Through my half-open door, I would watch him pass along the passage to his office and hear the door slam, and I thought, God, this is not going to be easy. One day I decided to take the bull by the horns, and by careful timing I managed to be in the passage when he was on his way to his office. It was fairly narrow, which meant that we would meet head-on. After you, sir, I said politely. Thanks, replied the Air Vice Marshal, with hardly a look, but owing to the limited space he had to glance up at me, and in doing so saw the RAF wings on my tunic. Hello, what are these? he asked rather truculently. I was in fighter command, 1930-35, sir. I answered quickly and purposefully. Oh, XREF. What the hell are you dressed like that for? he asked, his keen eyes searching my face. Well, sir, I'm in command of the glider pilots. Or I'm supposed to be. Supposed to be? What do you mean? he demanded. Well, sir, it is a long story, I replied hesitantly, for I was playing a tricky hand. Come in. I've only a moment, he said, opening the door of his office. My God, I thought, I'm in, and where I want to be, too. Well, he said, looking up from his desk, what is all this? What are you doing wandering about my headquarters? I don't see an establishment for your presence here. No, sir, I answered. I invented the rank and the position on your staff. You what? he cried. I invented the whole scheme. It was the only way to make any headway. Well, I'm bitched, he cried. Well, I've no time now. Got a date this evening. Come and have a drink with me in my quarters. Thank you, sir. About 6.30, sir? Yes, that's right. Come in then, he said. I saluted smartly and left his room. But I knew now that I had a chance to play my cards, and if I played them right, all would be well. That evening, we sat long and talked for many hours. I explained to him all my experiences in fighter command, and how I had come to be in the glider pilot regiment. I told him of the whole amazing plan to build a regiment of soldier pilots, and what had happened. How, against my advice, the glider pilots had been sent out without training, and even worse, without night-flying experience. In my opinion, I continued, there is a misconception as to the true status and value of glider pilots so far as the army is concerned, and if it is not changed it could be disastrous. It is extremely difficult for the average soldier, whether officer or other rank, to understand that these men are expensive luxuries. In the first years, I could only obtain one in twenty-five who seemed really satisfactory. We lost quite a few in the Sicilian operations. There is no question that the selection and basic training were right, and I was impressed with the flying training that the Royal Air Force had given. However, I've had good grounds for alarm since. Why? the Air Vice Marshal asked. Well, sir, you will understand what I mean when I say that it is imperative that a pilot should live in the environment of the air. After all, a horseman must live with and around the atmosphere of horses. Is it not the same with pilots? Whatever their employment or the type of aircraft they fly, they must live with and around aircraft. I couldn't agree with you more. What are you driving at? said the Air Vice Marshal, looking me straight in the eye. At the moment, several hundred glider pilots are messing about in Italy, under the command of the 1st Airborne Division. Many have not been near an airfield for months and months. The rest are in the RAF training pipeline, which is all right, but I feel that the glider pilots in the Salisbury Plain area 
are completely in the wrong environment. It's all right to have a base depot, as the RAF has, but the active pilots who are flying should live on the airfields. Yes, that's very true. Go on, he observed. Another point is this. You know better than I that your best air crews are a team. Pilots, navigators, forward and rear gunners and engineers, understanding each other perfectly. Well, sir, now you have two extra, the glider pilots on the end of the rope. The two must be part of the team, and in my opinion, there can only be one way to do this. I paused. Well, what is it? he queried with a twinkle in his eye. Well, sir, I hesitated and then said, within reason the glider pilots must live on the airfields with your own air crews, live, drink, laugh and womanise with them. It is only in this way that they will really come to understand each other and the air as well. Anyway, that is how I feel about it and feel strongly too, sir. The air vice marshal leaned back in his chair and said nothing. I can still feel the silence that crept into the room. The clock ticked and the fire moved in the grate. I wondered what he thought and what he was going to say. Some time elapsed before he spoke, and then he got up and moved over to the fireplace. He looked at the fire for a moment and then turned. Well, all that is very interesting, he said. I will give it considerable thought. I realised that nothing more was to be said, and I got up. Well, sir, I am very grateful to you for all your interest. I am very grateful to you indeed. He showed me out, and that was that, for the moment. It was in those moments that I felt the responsibility of my position very keenly, for I had a difficult path to tread. Had I been too disloyal to the army? What else was I to do? How could I put the situation over otherwise? I could not. It was imperative that the status of the regiment should be examined realistically. Well, it was done and that was that. I could not change my view and I was determined not to. I was now left with the generals to deal with. Would they see the situation in the same way? Was it possible that they could agree with the air marshal? In this particular case, they were considering an aspect of war which was new. They had to adapt their own attitude to a new military arm, a new vehicle. They understood the normal application of the conventional war machine, the inspiration which was needed, the normal practice of all that goes to make war and all that it demands. But however good they were at their job, as they understood it, they were completely ignorant of the potential of the new airborne army. I've already referred in Chapter 2 to differences in outlook between the army and the RAF, but it is necessary here to examine those differences more closely so that the problems I and the glider pilot regiment had to solve shall be fully understood. During the in-between years, the Air Force had expanded beyond recognition and many of the officers I had served with had gained high rank and great recognition for their services. In fact, the Air Force had gained a dominating position. They were popular with both government and nation and had adopted a never-again attitude to life. By that I mean that between the wars they had experienced frustration at the hands of both Army and Navy. This had produced in them a superiority plus inferiority complex, leading to a belief that they knew all the answers and a tendency to ridicule the rival services, particularly the army. Most of the senior officers of both army and RAF were trying to overcome this, but were handicapped by their natural inbred rivalry. Millions of pounds had been spent on the RAF airfields, and on some there was something approaching luxury in all rank messes. This tended to spoil discipline, but it was easy to understand the Air Force attitude. Officers and men who had to spend hours cramped in various types of aircraft were bound to develop a completely new comradeship and discipline, but not only that, they evolved a new language of their own and a new outlook. The army, on the other hand, had to continue with what they knew to be the only way for them, especially in the field. This demanded a high standard of discipline, for which there is no substitute on the battlefield, where once committed there is no going back. It was clear to me that we, the glider pilot regiment, must try to seek a compromise between army and RAF. While we must try to emulate the freedom granted to RAF aircrews, 
the relaxed outlook. We must also inculcate the necessary discipline to which the pilots would be subjected on landing in enemy country. The glider pilots would have no hot water, fried eggs and wafts and a bar to come back to, such as the RAF stations offer to returning aircrews. Instead, once committed, they would have to stay on and fight in all weathers with the rest of the airborne division and face all that was demanded of them on the battlefield. I found myself handling the two groups of senior officers with their different outlooks well enough, yet to try to persuade both sides that there had to be an intelligent compromise was not easy. But not only had I to win over the senior officers of both services, my own officers also had to be persuaded, and already I found that there were some on each side of the fence. One of the biggest obstacles I had to surmount stemmed from the haphazard organisation under which the glider pilot regiment had grown up, since it meant, inevitably, that my ideas would clash with those of high-ranking officers under whose command oddments of the regiment, as then constituted, were distributed. In my absence in North Africa and Sicily, the 6th Airborne Division had been formed, and in its commander, Major General Richard Gale, it had an inspired man who intended to build up his new division to the highest possible standard. He set out from the beginning to make it the best and had no intention of making it a copy of the 1st Airborne Division. He had the advantage of having the unit as a whole and he knew that if and when it went into action it would not have the disadvantages of the 1st Airborne Division since it would operate as one formation, not in parcels of units or brigades as the 1st Airborne Division had done. By now the full invasion of Europe was an established goal and all the arms and equipment available were being allocated to Gale who, it was clear, was determined not to make any mistake. Added to his accomplishments, he had all the experience and political know-how of the War Office behind him, which his brigade commanders well knew. One of his brigade commanders, Brigadier Hugh Kindersley, OBE, MC, was a brilliant officer, rich and confident, with a brigade of guards as a background, who was determined to make his brigade second to none. This was all to his credit, but so far as I was concerned, he represented a danger for two reasons – One, he had been an amateur pilot. Two, he believed that the 2nd Battalion Glider Pilot Regiment should be under his direct command. And he had obviously convinced the officers of that battalion that this was the right policy. I completely disagreed. At all costs, the Glider Pilot Regiment had to be independent of any command. Of this I was certain. It was a force on its own, with its own outlook, its own training and its own planning. I was determined that it should remain so. What might have been plain sailing for me was confused by the fact that Major General Boy Browning had been made Major General Airborne Forces, which seemed to me to be more in the nature of a political appointment, since it acted as a curb on a potentially brilliant leader. Major General Gale, after all, was neither junior to him nor under command. What little influence I had hoped for in furthering my plans for the regiment was to have come from General Browning. I now knew he was tremendously handicapped. So, therefore, was I. There was nothing for it but to play a lone hand, so I put my arguments for the independent status of the Glider Pilot Regiment both to the War Office and to the Royal Air Force, and the latter backed me up because they knew I was right. At last, I was appointed Commander Glider Pilots with two wings under command, and with the rank of full colonel, but I was given only one staff officer. I chose Peter Harding. In order that my forces could be fully concentrated, I made the strongest representations to the War Office for the return of the 1st Battalion from Italy. For, as explained earlier, they were trailing along behind the 1st Airborne Division in an absolutely useless role. At this time, 38 Wing of the RAF had been promoted to that of a group, and a further group, number 46 Group Royal Air Force, was to be utilised for operations. The latter group came under Air Transport Command, and it was equipped with Dakotas. It was upon these two formations that I wanted to base the whole of the Glider Pilot Regiment. 
The titles, battalions, companies, troops, were, in my opinion, ill-conceived, since the glider pilot regiment was a flying force. I therefore proposed they should be called wings, squadrons and flights. These ideas were accepted, and at last the regiment became unique in the British Army. A dream come true. The main feature of the reorganisation was that the HQ commander, glider pilots, should be independent in nature, and those subordinate to that HQ should also be independent. I therefore organised my own HQ as follows. As I'd been given only one staff officer, I had to compromise and set up my HQ at the base of 38 Group, a new organisation. Here I placed an officer and two glider pilot sergeants whose role was responsibility for all air training and operations. From their office I controlled all things necessary to flying. All flying instructions came from this office and from my HQ, and thus we were a liaison between the glider pilot regiment and the Royal Air Force. I placed two officers in charge of all administration and equipment and they dealt with the wing quartermaster and became liaison for all matters of administration and the link between the war office and the glider pilot regiment. I also designed Wing HQ to be such that it was independent in every way and should it be sent overseas independently it would be adaptable and able to work on its own. The Wing HQ had a number of flexible squadrons. These were so planned as to be able to fall in line with the Royal Air Force stations on which they were placed. Thus, the commander of the squadron on one of the airfields of 38 Group or 46 Group was completely at the disposal of the station commander. Each squadron had a number of flight HQs which were also blueprinted onto the RAF squadron HQ. In each flight would be a glider crew. This crew would be teamed up with a bomber crew of the Royal Air Force. They consisted of a first pilot and a second co-pilot. Thus, to the bomber pilot, navigator, engineer and gunner was added an extra crew namely the glider pilot in his glider on the end of the rope. Because of the rapidity with which this scheme was developed, it was impossible to train enough pilots. Thus, I devised the idea of a first pilot and a second grade pilot. I considered that if a pilot could have a short term of flying instruction, some 30 to 40 hours in all, he, the second pilot, would have sufficient training to take over from the first pilot under certain conditions when they were in flight or in a case of emergency, and if necessary he could land the glider. The second pilot was given simple training, and when he'd achieved the required standard, he received a pair of wings, but different from the first pilot's wings. He was given the rank of sergeant, as compared with the rank of staff sergeant held by the first pilot. From this reorganisation, the glider pilot emerged like a moth from the chrysalis, his position in the general scheme now settled. I also believed that glider pilots should be able to maintain their own gliders, and proposed to the Air Ministry that they should be given maintenance courses. These proved an unqualified success, as was shown by the high standard the glider pilots achieved in examinations. In this way, the glider pilot became completely independent if his glider needed servicing. Having given a background to the flying life of the glider pilot, I then had to organise their military formation and armaments, for it could not be forgotten for an instant that the pilots were also soldiers who would have to fight on the ground in every capacity. The wing HQ was equivalent to a battalion HQ on the ground, and was so organised with the subsidiary squadrons corresponding to the requirements of the Royal Air Force. For example, a flight consisted of four officers and 40 other ranks, all pilots of the gliders. Their armament was four pistols, two Tommy guns, two light machine guns and 32 rifles. This force would be under command of the squadron HQ, and each squadron could command up to five flights of four officers and 40 other ranks. The squadron was completely independent and so equipped that it had a staff and transport that could make it self-supporting under any conditions. Thus a wing, on entering battle, if it commanded, say, three squadrons, represented in firepower 38 pistols, 12 Bren guns, 12 Tommy guns and 192 rifles. 
As can be seen, this force, as created, was armed and trained to fight on its own as a lightly armed infantry battalion or in cooperation with other forces on the ground. In view of its military role, the highest standards of discipline were maintained at all times by the Glider Pilot Regiment, and it was an inspiration to visit the stations of the RAF groups to see how well the Glider Pilot Regiment worked with the Royal Air Force. During the period January to April 1944, all the Glider Pilot squadrons were trained intensively on the ground for the battles that lay ahead of them, and it was in January 1944 that, with many other officers, I entered a certain room in St James's Square to be briefed for the coming invasion. There, in front of us, was a long map covered by a baize curtain, and as we sat there I wondered, as many others must have done, what my feelings would be when I left it. A general came in, stood in front of us and addressed us as follows. Gentlemen, there are two things I want you to remember before I draw the Bay's curtain. The first is that if we do not get ashore or land in some way to defeat the enemy, the war may continue for many years. The second point is this. I am aware that I am addressing British and Canadian officers, and therefore I must ask you to be ready to understand that the contribution made by the British and Canadians is small beside that of the United States. Let us have no illusions about this. He turned and motioned for the curtain to be drawn back. And there was the line of the coast of Normandy, and there was the beachhead, which was to be the graveyard of so many courageous men. You will see, gentlemen, what I mean. On the left we have the second British army, to which is added the Canadian forces, but to the right of five American armies, not only ready for the beaches when the time comes, but also resupplied from the sea and beyond the seas from the United States. As I looked, I remembered my conversation with Randolph Churchill, and how he had said that Winston Churchill had another plan in his mind, and that the American forces were essential to that plan. I was now made aware of the contribution the 6th Airborne Division would have to make to the main landing. It was, in fact, to land by air, parachute and glider on the left flank of the 2nd British Army, to protect this flank from counterattack, and to hold up, if possible, any reserve which might endanger the seaborne landing on the shores of Normandy. It was clear that a parachute glider force would be expected to land on certain chosen target areas. The first part would probably have to be done at night and then be reinforced by another force on D-Day of the invasion. The positions the 6th Airborne Division were to hold lay in the area of the Caen Canal and the River Orne. Having been briefed and conscious of the great responsibility that rested on me, I felt that it was now my duty to see that impossible tasks were not demanded of the Glider Pilot Regiment without adequate training and practice, and to that end I pledged myself. As I have said, there was a strained atmosphere in the whole setup of HQ Airborne Forces, and even at this late date, when one might have expected encouragement from all taking part in the coming operations, I was sometimes rebuffed, as the following incident shows. Shortly after I had been promoted to the rank of full colonel, I was asked to dine at a certain HQ. At one moment during the evening, I walked into a room rather conscious of my new red tabs and came face to face with a very senior officer, accompanied by a number of his staff. Hello, what's this? cried the very senior officer. Oh, it's this new-fangled rank, Commander Glider Pilots, is it? Is that what you are? Yes, sir, I answered, and there followed a tense silence of a kind that I had learned this particular officer was an expert at creating. Well, what does it mean? What the hell do you think you are? Why do you need such a rank? He went on belligerently. So I tried to explain. Well, all I can say is it all seems damned unnecessary to me, and I'll give you six months before you blow up and find that you're quite superfluous. I said good night, and turned on my heel. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. 
If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.